but um, I don't know, you know, something's like crossed over in me, and I can't go back. I mean, I just couldn't live. I know. I know what you mean. Anyway, don't want to end up on the damn Geraldo show. <laughs> yeah. Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that decides whether your favorite pop culture artifacts from the 80s and 90s should ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after, or be driven off a cliff. (laughs) I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to pick up a hot drifter on the side of the road, only to have him steal every last cent of my money during our admittedly worth it one night stand. I'm Seth, the host most likely to shit twice and fall back in. (laughs) And I'm Becky, the host most likely to be billed in the credits before Brad Pitt, but after Stephen Tobolowsky. (laughs) It's not a bad place. It's not the worst place, really. It is Oscar season, my personal favorite time of year, when the infallible Academy Motion Picture X and Sciences (laughs) rightfully bestows top honors upon the most deserving cinematic artworks of the year, and everyone agrees with their choices. What planet are you living on? Planet Oscar? Actually, if there was a planet Oscar, I would 100% move there. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. Is it rent controlled? (laughs) In our next two episodes, we are rolling out the red carpet for the Best Actress lineup of the films from 1991, celebrating their 30th birthdays this year, starting with 1991's Thelma and Louise, which saw Best Actress nominations for stars Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, playing the groundbreaking female outlaws named in the title. And then in episode two, we'll be moving on to Silence of the Lambs, which won Best Actress for Jodie Foster's iconic portrayal of FBI agent Clarice Starling. We'll also briefly touch on two other nominees from the year. Uh, Formidable leading ladies Laura Dern, nominated for Rambling Rose, and Bette Midler, who earned a nod for For the Boys. Uh, Both of which I think we can safely say are less groundbreaking and less iconic than our featured topics. You don't know that. (laughs) You don't know that. Don't speak for us like this. I know some things. (laughs) So in part one, that's the episode you're listening to right now. We're going to start off with talking about Thelma and Louise. And at the end of this episode, we'll talk a little bit more about the Oscars for 91 before moving on to the big winner in part two. Okay, are you girls about ready to get serious? I'm going to let my hair down. (laughs) I'm going to tie a bandana around my hair. (laughs) It's a scarf. Seth, when you're a lady, it's a scarf. Oh, that's fair. I have misgendered a hair accessory, and I do apologize. Thelma and Louise and Silence of the Lambs are both films that have been on my radar as topics since we started this podcast. They're certainly two of the year's biggest films in terms of cultural impact, uh, being iconic, as well as for placing well-written, relatable female characters into genres that are usually dominated by men. 
So they could easily each, you know, be their own topic. But seeing these really groundbreaking performances from Gina Davis, Jodie Foster, and Susan Sarandon, and the way they were represented at the Academy Awards that year, made me really curious to take a closer look at what these films achieved together in 1991 as box office hits, as award-winning films, and in what they say about women in Hollywood and women in culture at large at the time. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, you guys thought about all that, right? This is another Snyder Cut episode. This is going to be like three <laughs> oh, hours, I'm sure. We could easily go so long on each of those parts, you know? I tried to restrain myself, and I can't guarantee that I succeeded, <laughs> but... We'll see. We'll, we'll see. When we chose this topic, I also did not realize that these films were both winners of the screenplay Oscars that year. Thelma and Louise for Best Original Screenplay and... Silence of the Lambs for Best Adapted Screenplay. But that was also really interesting, just that these two iconic films both were recognized in that way. That, that doesn't always happen. But we'll definitely be talking more about the screenplays later in these episodes. For now, I'm going to start with an opening question for you guys. Uh, it's a pretty direct reference to our topic here. My question is, who is your favorite actress in the 80s and 90s? Do you still like this person? And who is your favorite actress now? I thought the question was going to be, are you a Thelma or, or are you a Louise? <laughs> I thought the question was, what is the worst crime you've committed? <laughs> I had many, many options, but I, I don't know. I went with this one. I would love to go first because the moment you ask this question, I'm like, Sigourney Weaver, Sigourney Weaver. That's it. Ooh. Really? When you were a kid? Yes. Specifically because of her performances in Alien and especially in Ghostbusters. Mm. Yeah, she's oh, yeah. she's good in That's Ghostbusters. True. She is not just good in Ghostbusters, she's incredible in Ghostbusters and playing multiple characters and is such an alluring screen presence. Wait, what do you mean multiple characters? Because I only remember one. There's no Dana, there's only Zool. There is no Dana, only Zool. It's true. No, it's true, though. It's such a crazy, over-the-top character in terms of what she transforms into in Ghostbusters. The moment you asked the question, I knew Sigourney Weaver was the answer for me. And, of course, I still love her now and appreciate her even more for the crazy, like, breadth of her acting career. But she was one of the first, like, actresses who I saw in multiple movies and clocked, like, really, really good acting. She was, like, one of the first actresses I kept note of. And, yeah, I still absolutely love Sigourney Weaver now and appreciate her, like, even more for the crazy breadth of her career. Like, I love her in Galaxy Quest. <laughs> she's kind of one of those actors that still, like, makes any movie that she's in more interesting. Yeah, since we're doing an Oscars episode, I have to say Sigourney Weaver does not have an Oscar, and... That is criminally unfair. Like, it I really is... need her to get one. Well, what has she been in besides Alien that you would give her an Oscar for? She was nominated for Working Girl and for Gorillas in the Mist, I think. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she had those roles. She, honestly, lately, I don't know that she's had like an Oscar-y kind of role, but I hope that someone just like puts her in one immediately. Yeah, that was kind of the predicate of my testimony <laughs> in the name of Ms. Weaver. In addition to being criminally underrated by award shows, I think she was one of those actresses who reached a certain age and just kind of stopped getting offered roles. I think that happens to most actresses. 
she gets a lot of strange kind of sci-fi roles, which are good. Like she was in Cabin in the Woods and that's she's true. In stuff like that. I feel like that's the true. alien genre has followed her. But yeah, she doesn't get the Julianne Moore or, you know, whoever kind of roles. I feel like she's due, uh, I hate to use the word comeback, but I, I think she's due more meaty roles, you know? Well, she just needs to play Judy Garland or Billie Holiday or something. <laughs> And then she'll get it. Yep. She needs to like put on awful old age makeup and she'll get the recognition she deserves finally. What about you, Becky? There's only two people I can think of. Um, one was Christina Ricci. <laughs> uh, mm. was definitely my favorite actress when I was a kid um, because of Casper, because of the Addams Family movies. Um, she was definitely, I think, the first actress that I related to because she was probably my age or a little bit older um, when I was growing up. So I just, I liked her movies. I remember thinking like I wanted to be a teen actress because of Christina Ricci and that like teen (laughs) actresses get all the good roles. (laughs) That's what I remember thinking. They all have such a good time. Their lives go so well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No one takes all their money. So for a little bit, I was like following her career, but I pretty much just like stopped <laughs> at some point. I, she became like a little indie darling. She sure did. But just like was in movies I didn't I didn't really care for. I think in general, whenever I see her in something, I get a little like hint of nostalgia being like, you were my favorite actress growing up, but I don't follow her career at all. I think she's still a good actress. She's just not usually in things that I care about. It was all downhill after that darn cat. <laughs> that darn cat, yeah. <laughs> And then the other actress I can think of is Gillian Anderson. <laughs> yes. For The X-Files, a show I rarely watched. <laughs> <laughs> well documented on another episode. But I had box. her picture I I had her picture on my wall and I dyed my hair red because of her and I met her and got to like tell her how beautiful she was. <laughs> And I loved her, but I didn't really watch her TV show. Please refer to episode, I forget exactly which one. Um, but <laughs> yes, it was for that me, one. responding to what Becky just said, but viciously and mocking her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you for not repeating that. And I've always had like an affection toward Gillian Anderson, although I didn't really keep up to date with anything she did. But I just watched The Crown season four and she's amazing. Yeah, she is. She's an incredible actor. She's a really she's incredible actor. She's amazing actress. in it. She's so good as Margaret Thatcher, a, a person that I knew of by like name and by reputation, but I didn't ever see footage of her. Like I didn't see The Iron Lady with Meryl Streep. Um, and I just even... Even though I don't know this person well, because I'm not British, like I feel like I do because of her performance. Like she was so good. So I guess I am a team, team Jillian. Oh yeah. I also watched her on like Hannibal. Hell um, yeah. And I was like very happy to see her on that. So I have always been like very happy when she pops up and stuff. Uh, obviously, Christina Ricci and Jillian Anderson are both on my list as well. Like it's, yeah. Hmm. I feel like I know Chris's answer. Really? Yes. But it depends how it depends on what age. Um, I would like to know who you think. I think it's Sarah Michelle Geller. <laughs> Ooh. Whoa. 
<laughs> That's a bold choice. Well, okay. So that wasn't my answer, actually. But I, I suppose it is my answer <laughs> for like a certain, definitely like my favorite TV star. See, I went more classic with this. And I went kind of with the era that we're talking about. Three names came up. Some of them might be surprising. Some of them probably not. All blondes. That is probably not surprising. Well, that, yeah, it's that's not, not surprising. surprising. And what was funny is that they came up and these are all actresses we're about to talk about um, in this episode in one way or another. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Meryl Streep. Well, Catwoman. And Laura Dern. Laura Dern you liked growing up? Because of Jurassic Park. Oh, oh of course. Okay. Okay. Of course. That's I was so like, funny. Did you watch Blue Velvet when you were 10? <laughs> you, you know my history well enough to know that I did not watch Blue Velvet <laughs> yeah. when I was 10. It's funny because when I was thinking about this, I had these answers came to me pretty clearly. And yet I realized I'd only seen any of these actresses in like one or two movies because they were all like real actresses in mostly adult movies and yeah. <laughs> a lot of Oscar kind of nominated performances. And so, I mean, it makes sense why you picked Christina Ricci, Becky, because you mm-hmm. could see Christina Ricci movies. Um, and there, wa- <laughs> there were a lot of actresses who would do kind of one movie that I could see, maybe two, and then were in a bunch of movies that did not sound interesting to me or did, but I was not allowed to watch them. So Michelle Pfeiffer obviously was Catwoman. I think she was probably the most like exciting to me just because like she was an action heroine villainous meryl streep was in the river wild and that's where i saw meryl streep the river did you see it because of joe mazzello was in it maybe (laughs) i think so that was definitely a draw because he's timmy my surrogate who was a little boy in a park of dinosaurs that i wanted to be And then, yeah, Laura Dern was in Jurassic Park. So it's funny. These are all like mm-hmm. Academy caliber actresses, but they were all in like one action movie, basically, that I, you know, kind of lifted them out of and they became my favorites. And yet, you know, I have to say that worked out pretty well because they're all great actresses. So <laughs> um, and I all I think they're all incredible now. Um, I mean, Meryl Streep is kind of a given like. You know, she's Meryl Streep. But Michelle Pfeiffer and Laura Dern are still two of my very favorite actresses. And I'm really glad they're both kind of having little career renaissances right now after not being super prolific. What's Michelle Pfeiffer up to? She was in a movie called French Exit that came out. That's oh, true. Yeah. And she was supposed to be really good. Yeah, she was. It, it's a weird movie, but um, she's great in it. Although she's not blonde, she has red hair. But I overlooked that and still liked her performance. <laughs> How kind of you. <laughs> wow, Chris. Wow. Generosity. No, I, I say, I, I think all our choices uh, hold up. They all hold up. Yeah. Good job, everyone. The best actress is everybody. So now I'll give you guys a little background about Thelma and Louise. And by a little, I mean quite a lot of background about <laughs> Thelma and Louise. Because <laughs> I read a whole book about this movie and how it was made. Oh my God. Thelma and Louise originated, as many movies do, as a screenplay written by Callie Khoury, who was working in low-level music video production at the time. Uh, This was the 80s, so there were a lot of strippers, a lot of cocaine, a lot of objectification of women, and she was witness to a lot of degrading behavior toward women, and as was, you know, pretty much everyone who lived through the 1980s. So she channeled that frustration into her first screenplay, inspired by her friendship with country singer Pam Tillis, the Thelma to Callie's Louise. Pretty much everything in the movie was all there from the beginning. She just wrote the movie she wanted to see, and it kind of came to her just like in a flash in one moment. She kind of got the whole arc of the story down. And so it had that that ending and everything. Wow. 
She spent about six months writing the script, and when she finished, it attracted a lot of attention, you know, for a first screenplay especially. Every actress in the business at the time wanted to be in the movie, and every studio passed. (laughs) Wow. Mm. One film exec summed it up saying, I don't get it, it's two bitches in a car. Jesus Christ. He inspired the truck driver, I'm sure. (laughs) Also, he and many others. That would have been a fucking amazing title. Two bitches in a car. You could absolutely release a movie titled that now, and like people would get that. But still, what a piece of shit. Callie Corey, the writer, would joke that by the time like Hollywood got done with it, it would be called Tits and Bullets. <laughs> again, another movie I would see. Uh, again, uh, yeah, it's, I'm there opening day. Don't give it away. I'm, I'm going to write these movies. So yeah, Two Bitches in a Car was pretty much the dominant attitude throughout <laughs> Hollywood to the screenplay. No one was really saying that the script wasn't good, but just that it was basically impossible for anyone to make a movie like this. Like they couldn't even imagine a movie, you know, film starring women were hard enough to get made. Uh, film starring two women, even harder. And uh, two strong women who committed crimes and refused to be sexualized or stereotyped was unheard of at the time. So the book I read was called Off the Cliff by Becky Aikman, which is almost as much the story of women in Hollywood at the time as it is the making of this movie, because there are dozens of really cringe-inducing quotes about the attitude toward this movie as it was being made. A lot of testimonials from women from all kinds of roles in the industry about what they endured. There's way more than we could fit into this episode, but the deck was really stacked against this movie ever seeing the light of day. There's like shocking quote after shocking quote from even some like named directors and things like that that um, don't come off great when they were discussing this film. But like I said, every actress in town was very interested in this film. They wanted to play Thelma or Louise. Uh, Most of them didn't even care which one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I bet they did because it's actually like uh, a woman in her 30s that has actually depth for her character. Mm -hmm. It isn't just somebody's girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A smaller studio called Pathé was the only place in town that like really understood the movie and wanted to make it as it was. And Ridley Scott, who ended up directing the movie, was attached as a producer early on, but didn't actually want to direct the movie at first. He thought it was kind of too outside of his experience and what he was known for, which he had already made um, Alien and Blade Runner. So this is a, you know, a tad different. Than, it's very than Blade those. Runner-esque. What are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, But so he was meeting with a bunch of directors, uh, potential directors to make the movie. um, And they would come up with like terrible ideas for how to fix it. Um, The same kind of notes that the studios were giving them. They wanted to tone down Louise shooting the rapist, like have a guy come in and and shoot him. And then they go on the run. And of course, they wanted to change the ending. So that they get away with it. I don't think that they knew exactly what they wanted. Yeah. They just yeah. didn't want that. There's like two endings you could do, and one of them we saw. <laughs> Did they want to see women in prison? Was that what they wanted? Probably. Yeah. Sounds like they wanted ladies in jail. So Ridley Scott realized, like, as he was defending the script as it was, that he was so passionate about it that he had to make it. He'd kind of fallen in love with the movie. That's awesome. And so even though there were, like, Ridley Scott directed this movie and produced it and is really you know, the name behind it that got it made, as well as like the studio that ended up financing it was run by a man. But there were all these women on their teams that like identified the script and kind of told these guys that like this was a movie that they had (laughs) to see. So even though they're, you know, some of the the 
people on top of this whole production were men. They were men who were actually like listening to the women who worked with them, uh, which is an important thing to do when you're making a female-driven movie. Callie Curry originally envisioned Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand in the roles of Thelma and Louise when she wrote it. Wow. Interesting. That would be amazing. Which yeah. one for which one? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. They just both feel like Louise. <laughs> There's Louise and Louise. <laughs> I think Holly Hunter is Thelma. <laughs> Back then, she had some kind of more bubbly roles. I could kind of see That's it. Like, true. I could definitely see that. If you saw her that. in The Firm, she's kind of Thelma-ish in The Firm. Mm-hmm. Or even in Raising Arizona, it's somewhat of a similar energy. Mm, yeah. The first actresses who were actually attached to the movie were the two biggest female stars at the time, Michelle Pfeiffer and Jodie Foster. What? Ah. I know. I, I want to see. I want to see every two actresses you can pair together and see another movie of Thelma and Louise. Just with do them. rotating productions of Thelma and Louise and just slotting different amazing actresses. No, seriously, in. just make it a stage play and then just like <gasps> keep recasting it with like different A-list actresses. You guys, when the pandemic is over, we're producing this. We have so many projects to do after this. <laughs> I know. I know. Not to line it all up for us, but still, we're gonna do dinner theater. Rotating in actresses. So, Michelle and Jody, who do you think was Thelma? Who do you think was Louise? Michelle's Thelma. Yeah, Michelle's definitely Thelma. I can imagine her with that hair. <laughs> no, it was the other way around. That's what? crazy. Weird, right? Yeah, I thought that was weird. Playing against type then? Yeah, I guess so. But Michelle Pfeiffer's got those cat eyes. Like, she's too feisty. Yeah, she wasn't going to yeah. wear the Catwoman costume in the movie. Well, I don't that mean movie. that she was in a Catwoman costume, but she's <laughs> she showed up to audition with a bullwhip. And I think we need it to be Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters and <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer in Catwoman, both in the car doing this movie. Yes, please. Again, that's going to be one of the versions. Jody and Michelle ended up dropping out to take on other projects because this was while Ridley Scott was dragging his heels on not directing the movie, trying to audition everyone else to direct this movie. Sorry, Ridley Scott at this time was a big deal because of Alien. Was there anything else? And Blade Runner. I mean, Blade Runner was kind of a failure. Even though it kind of bombed? Yeah. And he was coming off of, I think, a couple other bombs too. Black Rain and Someone to Watch Over Me, I believe, are the movies he had made right before this. Yeah. None of those were doing that well. So even though he was like kind of really respected as this visionary, he hadn't had a hit in a while. Mm. And so he, in a way, like needed this, you know, to be a hit. And so that's one of the reasons he ended up doing it is because he realized that he needed to try something different. The next big pair of stars circling the role were Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, who both really wanted to do it. Ridley Scott was worried that the audience would go in expecting too much comedy, especially with Goldie Hawn, which I agree with. I think that would have been like a whole different movie. Yeah, definitely. As as much as I love both of them, I can't as easily see them in those roles. And they might not have been able to do Death Becomes Her if they had just been in this movie together. <gasps> oh, so that's right. I think I think the world came out a better place for them. Not yeah, being I think me. that worked out. Gina Davis pursued the role aggressively early on. Uh, she was desperate to play either part, and she kept changing her mind, <laughs> which when she wanted to be, she would literally like walk in and be like, I have to be Thelma. And then like... Ridley would be like, well, what about Louise? And she'd be like, I have to be Louise. Um, So she (laughs) could not make up her mind. Like she had her agent like calling every week, like asking what was going on. She had won the Oscar uh, for The Accidental Tourist in 1988, but she was known at the time for like a kooky character actress, Mm. which wasn't my vision of her, but that's because... Because of the fly? Well, 
<laughs> that and yeah, accidental tourist and Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. I was gonna say. Oh, that's right. Beetlejuice being before this. She, Gina Davis was one of the other first actors I knew because of a performance in like one of the kinds of movies that I would watch. I watched Beetlejuice so so much, and yeah, that's where I knew Gina Davis. Yeah, and so this was her first, like, leading role, actually. Wow. So that's crazy. Susan Sarandon was living in New York, so she was kind of out of the whole conversation. But eventually they suggested her for it. Um, but she was, you know, she was like a solid actress that people had seen in things, but she wasn't like, a big name star. Excuse you, she was <laughs> in Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> So she's been been a name for she a while. She was around, yeah. But she wasn't like a box office draw, like Michelle Pfeiffer. No, you got, mm-hmm. you got me there. So, I mean, the studio was like incredibly nervous about two really unproven leads and, you know, all the other unconventional things about this movie. There was another big casting decision to be made for the role of JD in this film. This was also a very sought after role because it was kind of recognized that it was a bit of a star making role. Brad Pitt auditioned and made uh, Gina Davis flub all her lines because she was nervous and kind of in <laughs> that is very cute so it, yeah it was funny they I, they brought in like four or five guys at the end of the casting process trying to read them with gina davis and none of the men on the crew like were into brad pitt they all thought that all the other guys had a better shot and it was gina davis who was like um hello you have to cast brad pitt. <laughs> thank you thelma my love for her is just only growing stronger by the second yeah isn't she in like Mensa? <laughs> Isn't she like super smart? She's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. Right? She's yeah. A, yeah. She's a film academic now or like a media academic now. I don't know what that means. <laughs> she has a whole like institute of media studies. It's a gender studies. So it's about like promoting women and film and basically pointing out why women are not being put in enough films and behind the camera. Wow. Yeah. One of the other three or four guys that was auditioning for the role was George Clooney. And Gina Davis had no memory of him being there. (laughs) She was just so into Brad Pitt. Relatable. Yeah. One other slightly interesting tidbit is the casting of Christopher McDonald as uh, Thelma's husband, Daryl, because he and Gina Davis had been about to move in together when she fell in love with Jeff Goldblum on the set of The Fly (gasps) and left him. Wait. She left him. So they were like exes in this movie. Yeah. Oh. And he was originally called in for the part of the rapist. And he was like, "Mm, I can't (laughs) do that. (laughs) That's a good choice. It's just an awkward situation. It's not a situation you want to have with your exes. uh, Yeah. I'm surprised they did the movie together. It's crazy. Thelma and Louise is about two BFFs from slightly different walks of life. Louise, played by Susan Sarandon, is a wry, greasy spoon waitress with a mysterious past. Thelma is a bubbly housewife who is unappreciated by her doofus husband. They go on a road trip, which takes a violent turn when Thelma is nearly raped and Louise shoots the bastard. They go on the run from the law and find themselves sort of enjoying the outlaw life. The movie was released May 24th, 1991. It cost $16.5 million and made $45.5 million. The reviews were pretty positive all around. Um, I didn't see any scathing reviews. One of the sort of middling ones was from Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly. He gave it a B. He said, it would be easy to overpraise Thelma and Louise. The movie is a real concoction, and so it never quite connects with us emotionally. Still, the actresses take their roles as far as they can go. These two lend the film's shamelessly operatic finale, a love-it-or-hate-it climax if ever there was one, a surreal conviction, even as part of you is thinking, give me a break. What? (laughs) Give me a break, Owen. (laughs) I find him middling, frankly. 
On the more enthusiastic end is Rita Kempley of the Washington Post. Oh, we're back on the Rita beat. And she said, if witches of Eastwick marked a turn against faltering feminism, Thelma and Louise signals the end of the detour. Bumper sticker sassy and welcome as a rest stop. This is one <laughs> sweet ragtop ride worth hitching if you don't mind getting your hair blown. <laughs> wow. Uh, she is always, always on the Rita beat. <laughs> what does that mean? She is just a poet of film criticism. Love it. We love us some Rita. Yeah. But is Rita a Thelma or is Rita a Louise? (laughs) We're all a little bit of Thelma and we're all a little bit of Louise. (laughs) Yeah, I think Becky's Zen answer actually is the correct one here. So uh, what is your guys' history with Thelma and Louise? Had you seen it before? Um, I definitely have seen this movie before, but it had been years, and I don't remember under what circumstances. Like Clockwork Orange, eyes taped open? <laughs> no, I saw it willingly. <laughs> I just don't, I don't remember how or when. When I was rewatching it for this, I remembered a bunch, so it stuck with me. I also probably remember the Simpsons episode that parodied it. Uh, of course. Yeah. I should well, hope that so. That goes saying. What about you, Seth? Thelma and Louise was a movie I was very aware of, like, throughout my childhood. I remember the VHS cover, the video jacket, so well, to the point where I knew, like, Gina Davis was on the video jacket, like, the lady from Beetlejuice. But I didn't see Thelma and Louise when I was growing up. I feel like it was a movie that, like, maybe my mom would rent, maybe cousins and friends of mine who you know like rented stuff at blockbuster at our local video stores would rent but i i know that i saw thelma and louise probably around the time i went to film school and have rewatched it once or twice since then i am similar to you guys um i had only seen it once um and like seth i was really aware of it as a kid and very aware, I think I like knew a lot about the story. It was just one of those movies like I couldn't believe I hadn't seen when I, I did see it, you know, just because it mm-hmm. <laughs> is so ingrained, I think, in the culture right now. Like you, if you mention Thelma and Louise, I think people know what like what kind of women you're talking about and absolutely probably know like some basics of the story and may may know the ending as well. It's just one of those movies that kind of looms large over culture. So it was kind of surprising that I hadn't seen it up until like six or eight years ago. I even studied it in film school as feminist theory, but before ever seeing it. So in a way, it was a little disappointing that I knew it so well because I was watching it. I knew what it was about. I knew the ending. But I think its reputation had stuck in my mind more than any of the specifics. So when I was coming back to it this time, I really didn't remember the details. I sort of just remembered the kind of more sweeping arc and was like not really sure, like, is this movie going to be funny? Is it thrilling? Like, I couldn't remember the balance of Mm -hmm. genres or really like anything besides kind of the broadest beats. Yeah, we think you have really bad manners. <laughs> yeah, where did you get off behaving like that with women you didn't even know? Huh? Huh? How'd you feel if somebody did that to your mother? Or your sister? Or your wife? Huh? What are you talking about? You know good and damn well what I'm talking about. I mean, really? That business with your tongue? What is that? That is disgusting. And oh my God, that other shit a point to your lap. I mean, what is that supposed to mean exactly, huh? I mean, does that mean pull over? I want to show you what a big fat slob I am. Yeah, or does that a- mean suck my dick? You women crazy. You got that right. We think you should apologize. I ain't apologizing for shit. You say you're sorry. Fuck that. 
you say you're sorry, or I'm gonna make you fucking sorry. Oh, Jesus. All right, so what did you guys think of it uh, this time around? I love this movie. I love this movie. I love this movie. To me, it's just such a fun twist on the Western genre. And from the first time I watched it, but especially every time I rewatch it, I just love how layered its lead characters are and the fact that it's very much a women's story told from women's point of view, just in every single way, narratively, in, in terms of the cinematography, in terms of like the overall storytelling. It's it's I love it more each time I watch it and think of it more fondly. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about more aspects of my love for it, but uh, yeah, spoiler, I love it. I think what's telling is that I didn't really write a lot of notes while watching it because I was just watching it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I was looking like, what did I think about it? But I'm like, I know what I thought about <laughs> it. I thought it was great. I think that it's such a part of film language at this point like the story or the concept behind the story like two I don't want to say middle-aged like women in their 30s getting into trouble in their car (laughs) (laughs) that it's been parodied it's like I also remember in Wayne's World where they did like let's do let's do the Thelma and Louise ending and they have like Wayne and Garth going over yeah (laughs) yeah that would have been the first time I heard about the ending of that movie (laughs) so it was fun to actually go back to the source of something that is very famous and watch it and realize that it is very well acted very well written and really intriguing to watch like just really fascinating especially it's 30 years later right Mm -hmm. and it's still just it was interesting what felt so relevant and other parts where I'm just like well if today this happens this is the difference that would be Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm sure we'll talk about that too so it was very interesting to watch it with just the the advantage of 30 years in the future I've always really liked Susan Sarandon she won the best actress Oscar for Dead Man Walking which came out a few years after this and I always just really liked her and I've liked Gina Davis but I never really like thought about her much and I thought she just like glowed like clearly I like her in A League of Their Own but like I really liked her when we watched The Fly a Mm -hmm. movie I'd never seen before like I just thought she was a great actress in this genre movie and in this I just thought she was just so she like lit up the screen I was just like oh my god what what a what a star like i just thought she's phenomenal i totally agree yeah yeah not just being a great actress because she is but just like like this woman was meant to be on camera she's amazing and also it's just fun to watch like what is this his first movie brad pitt his first like real like you know role. like that was fun to watch because i think that he's a great actor and it's fun that he's just always been himself like i thought well he did a really great thing with um the role that he had like as small as it was like he just gave a lot to it and knowing where his career goes from there like it's just really interesting to watch like yep there's brad pitt <laughs> like i expected him to be worse i guess because he's fresh <laughs> and new and you know like i guess just not a good actor maybe just like a pretty face but i thought he was also a good actor I think this whole movie is like perfectly cast too. And I mean, we'll talk about the other the other actors and roles in this. Chris, Chris, what do you, what do you think of this film in Louise? Now that you've read the book, drive it off the cliff. It's garbage. <laughs> no, I unfortunately cannot offer a voice of dissent because I also <laughs> really like this movie. I had a feeling that I thought it was great, but it's weird, you know, like when you've seen a movie once a long time ago and you haven't had a chance to revisit it again. Like sometimes you just don't know. Like you, mm-hmm. like it would it, it would have been a movie I would have said was great but would have felt kind of uncomfortable sticking to that because I just like didn't remember it well enough to point out why it was great beyond you know the concept but I find it just so satisfying as a movie um the kind of movie that we don't 
really see anymore just because it's like it's really well paced and it just like it touches on so many genres in the running time of just a little over two hours it's very funny it's suspenseful it's really dramatically moving it really hits all those things that you want out of a movie in a really like yeah genuine way and so i just like there are very few movies i think that like do all the different genres as well as this movie does and like it, it feels like a complete meal you know it, it does. That's so funny. I was thinking of that exact phrase. It's like, it's just a nice, like, complete meal. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's beautifully directed, too, in that sense. There's a good rhythm to everything about this movie, I think, in a way that kind of brings together all the elements about it that are great and just really makes it even more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, like Callie Khoury, the writer, really wanted to direct this movie. And because she hadn't directed a movie and this was her first script, like she really didn't have the clout to get it made. And if she had, you know, it would have been this like sort of $1 million little movie. Right. And Ridley Scott, like, seems like a weird match for it. He even now, I think, looking back, seems like a weird match because we're so used to him <laughs> doing big, epic things and sci-fi and very few movies that are centered on women. He seems like a strange match. He seemed kind of like a strange match back then. But what he brought to it was this, like, epic sense. And they're, like, especially once that was kind of pointed out to me and I watched the commentary and, you know, noticed all these little things that he had, like he has like a crop duster plane flying down and like the end has like millions of mm -hmm. police cars and helicopters. He just gives it this huge scope that I don't think many people would have approached the script with that kind of mentality, but it's this really kind of like testosterone fueled vision for a very female centric and female point of view story. So it's this really interesting juxtaposition of those two things. And I think it really is like the best of both of those worlds. I love that the guy who did Blade Runner and Alien wanted to do this. I like directors that do that. Like, it doesn't matter really what the movie's about if, you know, the story is is drawing them to it because I, I love to see them do, like, a romantic comedy or do a movie with two female leads and then do a sci-fi. I just, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and he was coming into it, like, have no agenda in terms of, like, I'm going to, like, make this big feminist film, you know? Like, that wasn't, it, it was... Like you said, it was just the story. It's a good story. He wanted to make it. He saw it visually in his head and thought it was great. You know, there were all kinds of calls to change different things about it. What, what if we made it men? <laughs> God. What if, what God. if every actor was a man in this? <laughs> Let's try that out. I agree. I think he was really the perfect choice for this, even though it isn't a choice that makes sense totally when you first think about it on paper. Yeah. And, and to me, it all kind of culminates. There was like a perfect scene kind of moment when they're driving through the desert and Thelma sees Brad Pitt for like the second time as he's like hitchhiking down oh. the road and totally alone. And Louise finally relents and she drives around to pick Brad Pitt up. That's like an absolutely kind of perfect scene. And it has almost no dialogue in it. It is choreographed and like filmed and edited almost like an action sequence even though it's a very kind of mundane thing happening. I, be I believe there is some dialogue. It's Thelma going, please! In please. like making puppy sounds. Yeah. There's, yeah. But yes, I'm panting. But like the moment where they like drive around <laughs> to pick Brad Pitt up, it's almost like one just continuous motion and it just stood out so much for me like as being the kind of sequence that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see in a kind of almost melodramatic movie the story of this and again it's like even just alongside these truly fucking awesome performances like it was really so much fun and such a treat to watch 
the kind of touches in the directing and the cinematography and the other elements of it that, you know, like Ridley Scott definitely brought, you know, and the other people who like worked on this. It was so enjoyable. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the movie is like beautiful to look at in a lot of places that could have been filmed, you know, very mundane. Because I mean, most of these landscapes are not inherently beautiful. They're stuff that we would kind of look at and be like, like cornfield, you know, like who cares? But I think because Ridley Scott is British, he kind of comes to America with this sort of different point of view and like really enjoys like highlighting Americana kind of stuff. And so it it has that sort of classic feel. Like there's a, right after the scene that you were talking about, like there's Brad Pitt is like walking away and it's like raining. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, there's all these visual touches that just make, like that could have been just like a whatever shot, but it, like with the rain coming down, it just like, it looks really iconic and beautiful. I think that's another aspect of it's, of Thelma and Louise being a Western because you like you want beautiful images of the American West when you're watching cowboys you know like go about and have adventures Mm -hmm. so it it was also really great to watch this now and see how much of a Western it was like I always kind of knew it was in the abstract but like even the the way that kind of action sequences happen in this movie is plotted out kind of exactly in the beats that any classical Hollywood Western would have made but just with with these particular women as the characters and again it's the thing that could have lived or died on the page just as like a great concept but that script is so good and the direction is so good and the performances are also good that it just absolutely nails that yeah I love the way that these women play these characters and also the way I I feel like everyone was just really on the same page of how they're portrayed like the the opening scene with Thelma like she has her her hair is like terrible it's all (laughs) it's bedhead she has this ugly robe on like almost any other movie she would like you know be in like you know probably like a a sexier nightgown and her hair would be perfect and she would have makeup you know it's like that's how like you normally see like the wife who's on the phone with her husband and a movie and you'll probably never see that character again in most movies but like these are like from the very beginning they're just like real and they, the details of their lives like when she's like eating the snicker like she keeps taking a bite of a snickers and then putting it back in the freezer and oh, then yeah. immediately getting it out <laughs> um there's just so many like details that make them feel like real people which especially at this time but you know even now is like it's still somewhat rare to see like women who feel like real women in a movie Oh, yeah. And I think the fact that the characters feel so lived in is the only reason why the plot conceits of this movie totally work and and pay off. Every single thing they do, no matter how insane, is completely believable for who those women are and where they're at in their lives. Turn around. In the future, when a woman's crying like that, she isn't having any fun. Bitch, I should have gone ahead and fucked her. What did you say? I said suck my cock. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Get the car. Oh, Jesus Christ. Louise, you shot him. Oh, my God. Your mouth, buddy. 
Do you think that they overreacted? Louise kills the guy, Harlan, because he's about to like rape Thelma. And then they, you know, that they split and not don't call the police or anything. Do you think they overreacted or do you think that they were right? Not in like what they did, but like saying we'll never be believed. Like our lives are over. What do you think? Mm, it's so thorny. I would love to believe that in 2021, a woman would be believed. But I don't think we have that luxury to be able to say that. Like, I don't. So you think back in 1991 that they were not really overreacting? I don't know if it's possible to say if they overreacted. Part of, again, what's so well-grounded about the way this movie plays out and what happens to these characters is that there are multiple potential like motivations for why they do what they do. And it's never like fully cut and dry and their world is shades of gray. The story, you know, at one point broaches the idea that Louise, Susan Sarandon's character, who's the person who shoots the guy, that she herself was raped you know, at least at, at, at at least one point in her life. And I think something this movie does very sensitively through the writing and in the performances is just kind of not reduce down either of these women's motivations or their worldview to, to just one easy thing and one easy explanation. You know, because they're also like women who are at different steps of development in their own lives, you know, and like part of what's beautiful about this movie to me is watching Thelma, Gina Davis's character, kind of become herself for the first time ever. It gets to a point later in the movie where Thelma like admits her feeling that like, no, she doesn't feel bad that Louise shot and killed this guy. She just feels bad that she wasn't the one who did it. So yeah, I'm, like I'm sorry, I've gone on forever, but like this is just a movie w- again that's like such a treat to watch because in a, every aspect that you would expect a kind of Hollywood movie to pull a punch or to go with an easy explanation or an easy moral judgment, it completely refuses to do that. And it's rare that movies do that, especially <laughs> movies with strong female characters in the lead doing things that are very criminal in society and they're they're literal outlaws. Yeah, it's really complicated, and it is kind of amazing <laughs> that um, no one made them change this. That I know it's seriously, I can't believe like it, it has this much integrity. Yeah, and that and that like you know, Callie Corey wrote it, and then Ridley Scott stuck by that, and the studio stuck by that. So it was they had the perfect team for this. This was the year of Anita Hill, which happened after this movie was released. So it wasn't like this was inspired by that in any way. But that's where culture was um, at this time. Basically, they would have been really taking their chances if they had gone to the police with this. And it is, I love that it's not a justified shooting because the rapist had already stopped attacking Velma and she they were getting mm-hmm. away and it's because mm-hmm. he like continues harassing them and saying like really misogynistic vulgar things that she shoots him and it's kind of this like instantaneous reaction she has which she doesn't you know think about it or anything it's just she kind of impulsively does it and it's because of you know whatever happened in Texas which we never find out you know too much about basically Texas is Louise's Chinatown <laughs> right <laughs> which i have to say is a much better location for something bad to happen to you and <laughs> But I just, I love that this movie lets it be something that, like, she shouldn't have done. There's no, like, legal, like, justification for what she did. Like, it's it's murder. And I think what you're getting at is that, like, the movie doesn't, also doesn't try to justify it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and yet we're on her side anyways, because we understand, well, I mean, we three are on her side. (laughs) Maybe not everyone who watched the movie is, but we're on her side because we understand, especially these days, how much of this is in the culture and how much women have dealt with this kind of thing. And so it's just like, it's a movie. It's like you're allowed to like live out these fantasies in a movie and like cheer for someone who killed a rapist, even though in real life you'd probably have to say, well, that you know isn't allowed yeah it's really it's so rare to to watch a movie that's like depicting a a woman's perspective like at all um but especially like in the sense that this movie is about like how almost only women are the people who are on women's side and it's like i noticed like the the waitress of like at the bar where thelma and louise were yeah Mm -hmm. like has thelma and louise's backs to harvey keitel who's like the is he fbi is that what he is he's the lawman harvey keitel is the strong arm of the law who's coming down on thelma and louise and this like random waitress who you know they they tipped her really well But she, like, actively tries to have Thelma and Louise's back. I noticed that, too. That's funny. That jumped out at me as well. Because she's not a big character in the movie. Like, she's a functional, you know, character who basically gives the police the information that they need to. But I I did, because at first when she was talking to him, I was like, oh, no. She's, like, selling them out. Like, she seemed Mm -hmm. to like them so much. I was, like, really kind of disappointed in her. And then the way that she kind of spins it and says, you know, like, this guy was a sleazebag. Like, I'm sure someone's husband came and and got him. And it's like, I don't know. I get a sense that she might even think what happened happened, but is still kind of, you know, spinning it differently to give them a little bit of an edge. So, yeah, yeah. I think I just thought it was sad that these women um, at this time felt that they had no power to seek justice for what happened than just killing him. Like that was all that they could do to get back at him. I'd I'd like to think that if this happened today, like you could just pull out your phone and be like, I'm recording you. (laughs) And you wouldn't have to go to murder. Like there are other ways that you could somehow get justice. But so I don't know. I get, I mean, things have changed a lot and, and sometimes they haven't. I mean, in a lot of ways, I don't think they have, at least as it regards how our systems treat women, you know? It's like, uh, I would trust police to more effectively track down people who robbed banks versus accused rapists. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of truth to the fact that, like, when Louise says, like, everyone saw you dancing with him, right. that's still very much a thing yeah, absolutely. in rape accusations, is the you led him on, you were being provocative, what were you wearing look at what you're wearing Mm -hmm. yeah and i think they had every reason and you know many women still do to not trust that the police would or i guess the the justice system in general that it would come through and yes the system itself because he didn't even have time to finish you know so it's like Mm -hmm. probably he wouldn't even if he got some kind of you know punishment for sexual assault would probably be minor because it was you know not a complete rape so yeah i think there's a lot of reason why that might not have worked out for them and i mean like now again i hate to say it but like now they're the kind of assholes who would like help people like that fundraise online so they could they could have a legal defense themselves yeah so yeah i mean it's like as much as some things have changed 
I never have a hard time understanding why people don't think they'll get justice from the systems that are supposed to deliver it. Why are Thelma and Louise trying to cancel Harlan? He was just trying to have a good time. <laughs> exactly. This is an example of cancel culture gone wrong. <laughs> uh, let's move on to talking about some of the other men in this movie. I was going to say, Chris, we have talked about women so much on this episode, and that's <laughs> fine and all, but can we talk about men? Michael Madsen. Yes. Uh, <laughs> He's so Michael Madsen-y. <laughs> he is such a weird energy. Like, I watched this movie twice, once with the commentary, and liked him a little bit more once I was expecting him. <laughs> but he has this, it's very 90s. It feels very, like, a few years before Swingers, Swingers. Mm-hmm. At, or, you know, very Tarantino, because he's worked with Tarantino a lot. And it just, like, I don't know, it, th- it throws me off. And I still don't know if I like him in that role. But it's oh, it's interesting. Him. Okay. I love him so much. I almost feel like it's unfair to Michael Madsen to call him Tarantino-esque or call his energy Tarantino-esque, where it's like, I think Tarantino has Michael Madsen energy. <laughs> um, mm. yeah. I, I've always liked him. Like, he has the face of a man who, like, knows he's damned to hell uh, and is going to enjoy, like, the whole ride down there. Um, and that's also the plot to the video for Montero by Lil Nas X, but also... Oh. <laughs> Um, but I just love Michael Madsen, and he does have a weird energy in this, but I like the fact that his character is one of the only men who is on the side of any women in this in this world, in the world of this story. Well, isn't, isn't Harvey Keitel kind of? In a way, he is, He and he's another one of the only men. Literally, they are the one or two exceptions, even in their own limited ways. But I, I, I believe the idea of that character as being like the one man that Louise would be able to kind of love. But even then, like, I, I also love the fact that Louise ends up actively choosing her freedom when, you know, Michael Madsen's character ends up proposing to her once he's kind of caught on to what their overall plan is. And I really liked in particular the scene where Michael Madsen is kind of saying goodbye to Louise and she's trying to pretend somewhat like it's not goodbye forever, but we all know it's goodbye forever. And <laughs> Michael Madsen's character knows it's goodbye forever. That was handled in a really touching and beautiful kind of way that, again, felt really real when it could have felt just really melodramatic and cheesy. Yeah, I he was he's just so kind of like twitchy <laughs> that it was a little like I it was hard to contain him in just like a few minutes of this movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I didn't dislike it. It was just, it was, an, it was a ch- like a very specific choice, I guess. They c- it could have been a lot more generic, and it was instead Michael Madsen. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was I very agree. Michael Madsen. He st- he stood out. What about Christopher McDonald? Did you guys like him? Um, I, he's he. That is the other man that we need to talk about because Christopher McDonald is fucking incredible in this movie. Hon. <laughs> what? You want anything special for dinner tonight? No, Thelma, I don't give a shit what we have for dinner. I may not even make it home for dinner. You know how Fridays are. Yeah, funny how so many people want to buy a carpet on a Friday night. You'd almost think they'd want to forget about it for the weekend. Well then, it's a good thing you're not regional manager. And I am. Choose by Tappy. Choose by Tappy. Whoa. Tappy's got juice. Is it just hindsight or has he always looked ridiculous? 
<laughs> well, he's definitely supposed to look ridiculous. Is he supposed to? He's I supposed mean, to look is. ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My fa- one of my favorite parts. Um, this movie has a lot of funny lines, and she, th- Louise wants Thelma to call home to be mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like we got to see if he knows anything. Talk to him if you even aren't sure that he doesn't know. Like you hang up, <laughs> and she and she calls him, and he's like. Thelma, hey! And she just hangs up and says, "He knows." <laughs> I was like, "That's that's a good that's a good joke." It's such a perfect joke. It's so perfect. This movie has a lot of funny moments, but I think that's probably the best. That may be the funniest. Moment. Yeah, but no, I think Christopher McDonald, like again, in terms of like appreciating the humor aspect of this movie even more, his character is just so fucking funny. He's just, like, one of the most intense assholes imaginable, but also so, like, inept and clumsy that it's just hilarious, even to the people around him. Like, Harvey Keitel, like, openly laughs at him constantly. That was Harvey Keitel actually laughing at him, by the way. That's great. I love that. <laughs> I love that detail. For me, he was, like a, like, a notch too broad, where, like, I kind of would have liked it reined in a little bit to be more real. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) He's real over the top. But he's funny. To me, again, like, kind of going back to seeing this much more as a Western now, made me able to understand and roll with the broadness of some of the characters much better. You would expect, like, the villain, bad guy person to be, like, over the top, insane, wild, crazy man. On the note of Big and Broad, uh, the truck driver, I believe he is unnamed. (laughs) Again, really, really too broad, I felt like. Yeah. If I had nitpicking here, a little too broad for me. I don't mind the sequence of like them seeking revenge and blowing up the truck and everything. I just like thought he was like so idiotic that he was like almost like a drooling cartoon. Yeah, I I don't disagree. It that that one bothers me a little less just because he's not as a very important character, like compared to her husband, where we have to kind of believe that she would have married this guy in the first place. But yeah, I kind of agree that like some of the comedy performances could have been like toned down a notch. Uh, this that guy was a Shakespearean actor, by the way. <laughs> so uh, cast against tape. Speaking of a subtle joke that I think definitely worked was in one scene they put the cop in the trunk so that he won't um, call them in or follow them, and then there's just a scene of a bicyclist who's just like <laughs> biking, and he's a black guy, and he hears the the cop in the trunk like trying to get out, and then he just blows cigar smoke into the trunk. That's weed smoke. It's weed smoke, Becky. Oh, it's weed yes, smoke. Yes, he's smoking weed. He has like it was like a giant blunt yes. or something. <laughs> he's wearing a shirt that has a weed leaf on it. Come on. Oh, is it? I didn't. <laughs> yes. I didn't realize. I wrote this down, too, as a note for, for that reason. That scene, it was just like, let's just add in some comedy. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. the black guy's just like, fuck you, cop. Nope, I'm not going to help you. Yeah. I think I, he does help him, though. Doesn't he, like, eventually? I thought he doesn't. He doesn't. He just blows smoke into the trunk. He just blows smoke into the trunk. Um, um, well, I, I thought then, but then it was implied that maybe he let him out because... The, oh, the cop is out. I don't know. I may anyway, have missed it. I but... definitely wanted him to not help the cop, but that's, that's well, a 2021 perspective coming in. <laughs> well, and see, I also, I wrote that down as a note, but I wondered to myself since looking back on it, like, would that not play out in the same way in 2021 when cops are heavily militarized and ready to deploy weapons constantly? Um, yeah. Well, I, I assume maybe he would have been wearing a... Uh... 
um, a body camera, but who knows? It's like in the middle of nowhere, right? In the middle of the desert. Yeah, I just thought it was it was a fun comedy moment. I don't know if it would necessarily fly now. Um, I do love when they blow up that asshole's tanker truck. Um, I thought that was again like like a, in a western that was like a perfect kind of movie moment like that. It's fun because you see so many things explode in movies, mm-hmm. um, but they rarely <laughs> like mean anything. And this is like. Yes. An explosion with meaning. Like, it, it's Absolutely. like all this aggression at these asshole guys that, like, treat women like objects that they can say anything to and, like, have no thought of, like, what the woman's actual reaction is. And they, like, school him and then they blow up his fucking truck. And it's just, like, it's a great movie moment. It's so much fun. I like um, Thelma's transformation just, like, She's just like, I think I got a knack for this. Like, it I makes it really it. interesting, the scene between her and Brad Pitt, because maybe it seems at first like a little like unnecessary. Like, why are they picking up this hitchhiker? But it's like she learned because he's like a robber and he like goes through his whole like spiel of like, this is what I say when I'm robbing. The hair dryer. That's where she like picks it up. And when and then she has the idea to like go rob, what is it, a liquor store or gas station or something? And she's like kind of saying the things that he said. And it was just really interesting that she's like, you know what, I think I'm good at this. <laughs> then I just kind of waltz on in and I say, ladies, gentlemen, let's see who wins the prize for keeping their cool. Simon says, everybody down on the floor. Now, nobody loses their head, then nobody loses their head. Uh, you, sir. Yeah, you do the honors. Take that cash you put in that bag right there. You got an amazing story to tell your friends. If not, well, you got a tag on your toe. You decide. Simple as that. Then I just slip on out. And, uh, get the hell out of Dodge, yeah. Mm-hmm. My goodness. You were sure genuinely about it. Well, now, I've always believed it done properly. Armed robbery doesn't have to be a totally unpleasant experience. What? You're a real life outlaw, aren't you? Well, I may be an outlaw, darling, but uh, you're the one stealing my heart. Oh, it's smooth. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love the arc between Thelma and J.D. Brad Pitt's character so much because this movie is about these women who like learn to give themselves permission and learn that they don't need permission from anyone else and like J.D.'s character is like this could be just very stereotypical like outlaw cowboy type but he like you said Becky he teaches Thelma to be free and like how to how to free herself from feeling like she needs everyone else's permission in the world including her husband to just be herself and I love that not only does she hit it and quit it with him (laughs) but that he kind of helps her in her like spiritual journey of this movie yeah i forgot that brad pitt robbed them like kind of like becky was saying earlier i was just so (laughs) into the movie that i wasn't really like watching it with a brain that had seen it before i was just sort of like what's next what's next and that was one of those beats that i just like didn't remember so when it happened like i was was so excited by the sex scene more as a character beat, uh, you know, excited in other ways as well, but (laughs) (laughs) mostly as a character beat for Thelma, just because like that scene where she comes in the next day with again, the messy hair (laughs) and her acting is just so funny. And she's like basically telling Louise without telling her like what happened. So great. It's such a good scene. Uh, What happened to your hair? Nothing. Got messed up. 
Thelma, what's wrong with you? Nothing. Why? Do I seem different? Well, now you mention it, yeah, you, you seem like you're crazy or you're on drugs. Well, I'm not on drugs, but I might be crazy. <laughs> Tell me what happened. <laughs> what happened? Jake just came back. Oh my God, Louise. Oh my God. Oh no. I can't believe it. I mean, I just can't believe it. No. Oh my God. It's like. <laughs> I finally understand what all the fuss is about now. It's just like a whole nother ball. Oh, darling, I'm so happy for you. That's great. I really am. You finally got laid properly. <laughs> so sweet. And it's this big celebration. And then, like, there's this, like, revelation that he, like, must have run off with her money. And I, too, I was like, no, he didn't. He would never. It's Brad Pitt. <laughs> I was still trying to justify it. I had totally forgotten it, too, Chris. He's the fantasy man. He would never do this. <laughs> and and it is. It, like, it's kind of this blow. And then you really are, I think, kind of like, oh, my God. Like, what now? What are they going to do? And, like, again, like, I didn't remember that she then started robbing a convenience store. And so that was also another surprise. I was like, oh, that's how they got out of it. But it's really this interesting thing is that he steals something from her, but because she gained knowledge from him, she's able to like basically replace the money and they can keep going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's great writing in that way. I do just find this movie very relatable because um, (laughs) after you have sex with Brad Pitt, you might as well drive off a cliff because it doesn't get much better than that. Was there an alternate ending? There were different ways that they cut it, but there wasn't. Mm. It, it oh. didn't change the plot at all. What? How did they cut it? That changed it. So there were some scenes that showed the car like continuing down, 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 and it's really yeah. dismaying. And it definitely wouldn't have worked because it's just like like the ending as it now freeze frames as they're still like ramping up, and they tried it different ways where it was even just like slightly more down, and people were disappointed. And it's this really strange psychological thing that like you have to see the car still going up when the movie ends to feel good about it, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though like intellectually you know it will go down. But um, seeing it go down um, did not work. There was another when they like went over the cliff, but then you see more of Harvey Keitel like reacting and he looks at the photograph and Okay. I think I, I think there are clips of all of these on YouTube. Oh, okay. I, I watched at least one of the, like a three and a half minute clip or so that definitely had a lot more of the car going down. Mm-hmm. And Chris, that's, that's a really fascinating point. And it's like, as much as we would like to believe that we, you know, can, can fine tune in writing any kind of action sequence or, or moment in a film, that feels like watching that extended version was kind of more depressing. Mm-hmm. It was. And at the first sneak preview, they showed the ending. I think it's one of the ones that, that's online where it goes on a little bit longer and it ends more with like Harvey Keitel kind of realizing, you know, like about this tragedy and looking at these women, um, the photo of them. And the audience hated the movie. <laughs> so <laughs> it was really important that they kind of ended it where they did. Like somehow that beach is just perfect. And that's how it was written. Um, but then they like wow. kind of second guessed it because it's so, it is, you know, it's a challenging ending. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it was one of those things where, like, messing with it at all just, like, completely ruined it. They had to leave it the way it was. Do you guys like the ending? I love it. I think that is the only perfect way to end it. Like, it, it, Chris, it was really, it was very interesting learning that it kind of 
came to this writer all in one fell swoop because it seems like it's one of those stories about like famous songs that were written in like 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I can totally feel this movie as like a kind of burst of inspiration that came all in one fell swoop. And it surprisingly works for that. Like every part of that actually works on screen. Again, it's just kind of astonishing, especially this much later that this movie got made, that it got made the way it did and that the vision of it and the vision of the writer has so much integrity. Yeah, I really love the ending. I mean, I like this movie kind of more as it goes on. I like the beginning and everything, but where it really like kicks in for me is when Thelma robs the store and they're like kind of really outlaws and they're kind of enjoying it. I already talked about, you know, Ridley Scott's direction and what I think of it, but he really understood what it took to make this feel like mythic. Yes. From the opening shot, you know, it's like it starts with a shot of, I think the Grand Canyon or, you know, it's supposed to be um, in black and white and like going to color. And the, the score um, by Hans Zimmer, you know, kind of captures that as well. And it, it immediately sets it up with this epic sense that again, like most, I think filmmakers wouldn't have started the movie that way, but it, it's hard to imagine this movie done a different way and still like being the movie that it was like, it, there's, something about those like wide open landscapes and the cinematography that I feel like even though it's an intimate story about two women in some ways it also just like lends itself to this huge scope and the the fact that this movie is so different like lends itself to that so there isn't really another way to end the movie that works that I can think of you know it's just like they get caught they somehow get away with it I don't know it's like there's no way they get away with it yeah right you'd have to change so much more of the movie yeah I mean like and I think like part of the ending is also just where society is. It's like society can't imagine women getting away with this. We can imagine men getting away with it, I think. Um, (laughs) But I think it's just like, it's hard to imagine like that, like the police would ever just like somehow like let these women go, like that they wouldn't just like have to punish them for what they've done because these patriarchal points of view that we have are so ingrained that like when someone transgresses against them, like it feels like a bigger crime than this would have felt like, you know, if it had been a man, like this would have been like no big deal. Like there are movies like this with men all the time. So like the sense that they can't even survive in our imagination, like we have to like imagine them dying. Well, and not just, like, men universally, but also, like, man in the tradition of the Western genre. When you compare it to, like, the genre convention, the vision of the Western man is constantly armed and constantly dangerous and constantly laying down the law and laying down out West justice by shooting people dead. In the convention of that movie genre and that kind of character, shooting people to death is not just less punished it's openly encouraged and it's rewarded and we consider them heroes and so again like i think one thing that works so well in theory but especially in practice in the story of this movie is how it shows how these systems would treat women who quote-unquote took the law into their own hands and, and sought justice in that particular way yeah i mean you're you keep talking about westerns and this definitely follows sort of the formula of butch cassidy and the sundance kid down to the ending that sort of suggests a death and freeze frames before you actually know exactly what happens. This movie also reminds me a lot of Easy Rider. Absolutely. And feels to me as revolutionary as that movie is. And that movie basically changed the business at the time because it was this indie kind of counterculture movie that was a huge hit and, you know, 
it's it's also iconic too. It's kind of amazing that I think like this movie is right up there with those other two. I can't tell if it's just because I know what the ending is, but I feel like the sense of doom throughout the movie too. Oh, absolutely. Is there like a really interesting juxtaposition with the comedy? And I don't know if that was there, if like you were seeing it for the first time and didn't know if that would still be there, but like it makes everything feel heightened in this way. Like even when they like are first setting out on their trip and they're like, let's stop. I'm like, no, go fishing. Please go fishing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that was there otherwise, but it definitely like, it makes me just like, like I'm hanging on to everything that happens, like kind of in suspense. I repeat, cut your engine off and place your hands in plain view. Okay, then, listen. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. What do you mean? Go! You sure? Yeah. I have an offbeat question, uh, which is, <laughs> did anyone else keep thinking of Romy and Michelle? Yes, <laughs> no, I did. <laughs> Chris, <Okay. laughs> I, uh, I can't tell you what it means to know that I'm not alone here. <laughs> but why they don't, en- there's not like a, an event there they're like leading toward a road movie it's a road movie they have well when i think of romeo and michelle i think of like them going to the reunion if you've seen romeo and michelle 465 times like (laughs) seth and i probably have you know every line of dialogue and every single frame of the movie they have the scarves which i think had to be a conscious (laughs) homage to Thelma and louise in romeo and michelle oh i bet it was they have the, the scarves and the sunglasses and they're driving a old convertible you know it, they end a little differently but um <laughs> just a little <laughs> only a little <laughs> for, especially for the beginning of this movie i just kept like expecting them to say lines from romeo and michelle but they didn't because that movie came later also i'm gonna rewatch romeo and michelle now because i bet there are more like visual homages to that than we're thinking of offhand well yeah i mean they have like the little boy is making faces from the other car right. which i feel like feels That's like right. the truck driver <laughs> yeah i'm 98 sure that that was conscious sadly there's no ramon in thelma and louise <laughs> yeah where did they get that car did they did they have to i'll stop talking about <laughs> a different movie Thanks. there's one moment that i really liked that was just like this really small moment but i had to point it out which is when thelma is robbing the store louise is just like left back in the car and she just like looks in the mirror and she like is about to like apply lipstick and then like is like forget it and just throws the lipstick out of the car and she sees these old women sitting in a diner or something that's across the street and it's just like this weird quiet moment that you normally like wouldn't see in a movie because you know nothing is technically happening but it's just like this moment that I feel like she kind of to me like I I guess it goes with that sense of doom is that like she sees like these old women and almost in a way like realizes like that'll never be her like almost that she's like doomed and will never reach that age. And I just thought it was like this really interesting moment in a movie that was like getting progressively like more action packed. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't pick up on that. 
That's interesting. And I think it's of a piece with what we've talked about just in terms of all the small little human moments that are riddled throughout this movie, like even in like between the louder, you know, more violent plot driven kind of moments. Riddled by Ridley. There's so many moments that just reveal character in in very subtle ways. Um, And again, just make these two women feel completely real, like completely real. Yeah, I overall just found this movie still feels so fresh. Mm -hmm. Shockingly fresh for a movie that's from 1991, 30 years ago. There's almost nothing else like it. Queen and Slim is a movie that I feel like actually feels a lot like this and kind of did a lot of similar things with with how this movie talks about women, how that movie talks about like Black people and law enforcement. And, you know, since we're talking about Oscars in this episode, I, I thought it was interesting the parallels that this has with Promising Young Woman this year, which is nominated for Best Picture, and is another story about rape and revenge and two female friends. It goes in different places, but I don't know. It's just interesting that those same themes are still considered provocative now, kind of as if Thelma and Louise had not already addressed them 30 years ago. Well, yeah, and I feel like that that's another part of why it feels so timeless, is that relatively very little progress has been made in making a world where women are treated substantially differently. Yeah, it's really interesting. And again, it's like, that's a layer of it. I didn't pick up on as much in the times before this that I rewatched it. Thelma and Louise ended up opening at number four at the box office behind Backdraft, What About Bob, and Hudson Hawk. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) levels of quality there. Yeah. But it ended up becoming a huge word-of-mouth hit. It inspired a lot of debates about feminism in the media. There was backlash. There was backlash to the backlash. Thelma and Louise were on the cover of Time magazine. There was a lot of talk about whether or not this film was endorsing women shooting men, basically. Female criminality? John Leo wrote one of the most notorious pieces about this movie in U.S. News and World Report. He called it toxic feminism and said it was <laughs> about as morally and intellectually screwed up as a Hollywood movie can get. Perfect. What? I also, in a way, I feel kind of reassured and a bit comforted when we get these like bits from the past and, and these voices from the past that remind us that the same reactionary asshole sentiments are always around and those aren't just new now and we're not just beset by these people now. Like it, that, that kind of attitude, which of course w- we don't need to know that person's work to know that he wouldn't necessarily have this same take on men being violent in a movie. In a way, it's kind of reassuring to know that that attitude has been around. Yeah, it would be a tweet now, but <laughs> oh. that's the only difference. It, it would be a tweet. It would be an episode of a Tucker Carlson. <laughs> yeah. How dare you speak that name? Uh, this reaction was a huge surprise to everyone who made this movie. They basically countered that only three people die in this movie, and two are Thelma and Louise. <laughs> and the third one is a rapist. And yet the movie just like threw people for a loop, I think, you know, because it was so different. But, you know, I think that's how you know you're doing something right, you know, is when um, conservative assholes are upset at you. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) MGM also pitched a TV show with the line, guess what? They made it. (laughs) (laughs) No. Wait, what? They went to Ridley Scott with that. Like, that was part of the pitch was that that line. (laughs) Uh, Ridley You're Scott shitting me. declined. <laughs> <laughs> he would have made a ton of money, what? but it was not worth it. 
That's so fucking funny. <laughs> I almost wish it existed, though. <laughs> just to, like... But, I mean, just of all the things, like, <laughs> the, I, I can... I can conceivably imagine some version of a TV series either that like reboots it, you know, or, you know, goes more into what their lives were before this, you know, like better call sawing it. Um, but the idea <laughs> that they made it across is absolutely hilarious. What? <laughs> that is insane. Becky can't even react. Yeah. I can't. Thelma and Louise ended up being the closing movie of Cannes. Uh, it also had six nominations at the Oscars that year. Two for Best Actress, plus Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Director. A lot of really major awards. Yeah. It only won one, and that was for Callie Curry's screenplay. Well, for everybody that wanted to see a happy ending for Thelma and Louise, to me, this is it. <laughs> I have a lot of people I want to thank, so I'll get started. Ridley, I couldn't thank you in 45 years, much less 45 seconds, so I won't try now. Gina and Susan, I think you've made the world a better place (laughs) for those performances. I love you. I want to thank my husband, who helped me so much in ways that I could never tell him, and it wasn't by being like uh, Daryl. He wasn't... (laughs) He wasn't the model for any of the characters. In fact, um, my brother was. Well, I'm just kidding. Uh, well deserved, I would say. I'm very glad that it was an original screenplay because I think it would have lost to Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, I also can totally understand it being nominated for all of those. And in almost any other year, I could see it winning most of those. <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely like your weaker lineups. This was not a particularly weak year for the competition. Right. It is sort of telling that this didn't get a Best Picture nomination, even though the Academy obviously liked the writing, direction, acting, and all of... Wait, it didn't? No. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, they liked everything <laughs> except for the movie overall. <laughs> what, what was nominated for Best Picture? The Prince of Tides, Bugsy, Oof. Beauty and the Beast, JFK. And Silence of the Lambs. Wow. Interesting. And this year was also kind of controversial because Barbara Streisand was not nominated for Best Director, even though her movie got Best Picture. It was Ridley Scott who got that slot, maybe. Hmm. So it's like, you know, you you win some, you lose some. Although in this case, I have to say The Prince of Tides is pretty terrible. So (laughs) picking Ridley Scott was actually the (laughs) correct choice. Sorry. Yeah, seriously. As for Best Actress, uh, having both nominated probably uh, split the vote. I was thinking about this recently. We're going to get into Science of the Lambs, but I don't think either one of them would have won because they're equally good. Like, it's not just like, oh, they're from the same movie, they're going to split the vote. But like, how do you pick one over the other for Best Actress if you have to pick one? Like, I just feel like they're so evenly matched in this movie that it's impossible. Yeah, I mostly agree with that. I don't know. Like, I, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't, like, 
disingenuously shoehorn one or the other of them into the best supporting actress category just to try. Which they probably would do now, honestly. Absolutely. Oh, oh absolutely. yeah, they're doing it this year at the Oscars. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also kind of funny looking back on the relative kind of kinds of politics and gamesmanship that get played around the nominations for this. But yeah, I mean, obviously having them both in the running for best actress would completely split the vote. Yeah, I mean, it would it would be. I think some would vote for one, some would vote for the other. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's like two actresses nominated from the same movie, but it's kind of obvious which one the real favorite is. But this is, I don't think, one of those cases. But besides Jodie Foster, who ended up winning, uh, there were two other actresses in this category because there are five. They are very well regarded actresses who have won many accolades for their careers and also many accolades from Chris and Seth. <laughs> <laughs> some some more than others. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was very excited to watch these two extra movies because I like Bette Midler and I like Laura Dern. Well, do you still? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, no. So the nominations, just to recap, were uh, Laura Dern. It was her first nomination for Rambling Rose. And Bette Midler, it was her second nomination following the movie The Rose. Uh, the Academy <laughs> loves roses. Uh, it was for the boys. Uh, So let's start with For the Boys. Uh, It was directed by Mark Rydell, starring Midler and James Caan as a showbiz duo who entertained the troops from World War II through Vietnam. There's lots of singing and lots of sassing. Uh, (laughs) It opened in November 91 on a budget of $40 million and made less than $25 million. Uh, Wow, really? It was a dud. It did win the Globe for Bette Midler. None of these other actresses for the Oscar were nominated because it was musical comedy. Um, She was nominated against Angelica Houston for The Addams Family, for one. Probably should have won. Absolutely. Winner in my heart. And Bette Midler's nomination for this was the only nod for for the boys. Alone in the dark with thousands of men. So, did you guys watch for the boys? Did I, you love I popped for the in, boys? I popped in for the boys, and I thought to myself, finally, a movie Chris and I can enjoy. <laughs> Enough with these women. Where's something me. for the? When is Hollywood going to finally make something for the boys? <laughs> finally, but then the first title card says an all-girl production, and I was like, "What a con job!" And then Jimmy Con shows up. Jimmy Con. <laughs> Jimmy you didn't watch this movie. <laughs> I did watch this movie, and it's very bad. I watched about the first 45 minutes to an hour and then fast-forwarded the rest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I watched the whole thing. I like me some Bette Midler. Love some beaches, uh, you know, uh, at all. <laughs> but, like, this movie was... Okay, let's just even focus just on her. She's a theater actress. Like, I just felt like she was, like, on in a stage play. She is so like she's, theatrical. She's very theatrical, I, and that's great. It, but She's a theater actress. <laughs> that's how she delivers most of her lines, whether or not she's yeah, singing. It didn't, it didn't work. It didn't work. And then the movie itself didn't work. It, exactly as you said, Becky. I love me some Bette Midler. <laughs> like... <laughs> I love her in Hocus Pocus. I love her in uh, First Wives Club. And that's mostly it. 
Well, you should have loved her in this then, because she's playing her character from Hocus Pocus for half the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, like she's... Starting with the fact that she's in the very worst old age makeup that I have ever seen in my life. It's terrible. It's It's like stage makeup, honestly, is what it looks like to me. It's like when a high schooler plays an old person (laughs) in a production of like Death of a Salesman or something. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's perfect. Everything about this movie feels so theatrical and so old Hollywood, kind of like a travelogue kind of movie because it veers into like Korean War stuff. And like she's a USO, the the story of the movie is like she's she becomes this USO performer is very lauded and loved. But it's such a theatrical like review with the VUE version of that story where like every story beat is coming from a hundred miles away. Bette Midler's character becomes an instant megastar. It, it was just so boring. It was so boring, and, and her acting stood out not in the good way. It was. It's very long. It's two hours and 20 minutes. <laughs> it's really it long. long. And it's not that many scenes, but the scenes are so long. They go on forever. And I'm not one to complain about long movies because no. I watch them all the time. We will let a take play out, okay? But like this just, it's like every scene is a big event, like capital B, capital E, big event where someone dies <laughs> or like some major confrontation happens. And then it like jumps ahead like five or 10 years and it, <laughs> It has no time to like establish like daily lives of any of the characters. So it's just like every scene is just like the highlight reel. And it, it's so weird that this is a fictional story because it feels like a biopic. It feels like they... Wait, it's fictional? Yes. I completely assumed this was a biopic no, of someone I'd someone never heard of. someone invented the story <laughs> and decided to present it like this. Like in three different wars, but also like back in like Hollywood land. It literally they're making shows. The story is like a dinner theater play. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't work. I mean, it, like to cover three wars in a fl- flashback <laughs> sequence. I mean, it does the kind of terrible thing that way too many '90s movies do, where it's like I'm an old person telling a stranger about my life. Like, <laughs> I mean, it does that particularly badly. And then even that device like goes on forever. Like the award show, it's like it becomes basically just like a real award show, and you're going through all the motions, <laughs> and you're like, "What am I watching?" I- yeah, I forgot like midway through that there was an award show involved. And I was like, oh no, this is, we're already talking about Oscars. I've had enough awards. Thank you. This was not the Oscars. This was a, a poor substitute. Right. It was her life achievement award. <laughs> and just as a performance, like since, you know, that's mostly what we're talking about is just, yeah, she's broad and she just never has a moment. She does like big acting, but she never has a chance to like be like a good movie actress. So like, Weak link. Uh, the boys deserve better. <laughs> I've been saying that for a long time. And now Rambling Rose. Yes, uh, we will move on to Rambling Rose. The Southern Time Charm Hour has now begun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a discarded Tennessee Williams play. <laughs> I'm a Rennie Harlan production. <laughs> God damn it. Let me ramble about Rose. <laughs> Rambling Rose stars Laura Dern, Robert Duvall, Lucas Haas, and Diane Ladd. It was released in September 91, grossing a little over $6 million on a $7.5 million budget. So not exactly a worldwide sensation either. The plot follows the Hillier family of Birmingham as they take in a troubled young woman named Rose during the Great Depression who has trouble controlling her sexual impulses? Boy, does she ever. 
Where are his clothes? Um, under the mattress. I, I didn't want you to be mad. He wants to marry me, Mister. He's really a sweet boy. I, I can't marry him. I mean, you know, he ain't got no money and got no job. He's too young and all. But well, he loves me, and well, I was just thinking maybe they didn't. You wouldn't want to hurt him or anything. Now, no, I won't hurt him, Rose. Mr. Hillier, I know I was bad, and I had not to have done it. But I am only a human girl person, and I ain't always perfect. Dern and Diane Ladd were both nominated for this movie, uh, becoming the first mother-daughter duo nominated in the same year. This film also won Best Film and Best Director at the Independent Spirit Awards. All right. If you say so. (laughs) (laughs) How did Rose ramble for you? (laughs) Well, I got maybe, um, I made it to the scene where she allowed a preteen slash teen child. uh, I think he's 13. He's 13. Yeah, uh, that's like preteen teen um, I, when he was filling her up in a bed. And then I was like, I'm going to I'm going to move on. <laughs> so that's that's where I got. <laughs> uh, look, Laura Dern, is, she was crying a lot in the movie. So I was like, that's good. That's good acting. But the movie itself was like like somebody was writing an SNL sketch about a southern drama <laughs> you know from the Absolutely. 40s like that's what the movie especially felt like. with john hurd's like horrible fake southern voiceover and again it's it's another movie that's like told entirely in flashbacks yeah the john hurd of it all is not great i kind of liked this movie like no. he- like i <laughs> hesitantly liked this movie or at least i found it very entertaining like it it was very watchable there was always something going on um it's a very strange plot where basically like laura <laughs> Dern is a, I don't know, maybe she's like 20-year-old nymphomaniac. She's a nympho. (laughs) It's a movie about how John Hurd never got over a nympho. Yeah, and she just like, basically like can't help herself from sleeping with any man who pays her attention and like pursuing Robert Duvall, who's like the father figure in this house and like she just leaps on him and there is a very memorable line where her her breast comes out and he requests <laughs> that she replace that tit. <laughs> it's I will agree with you Chris that it's very watchable for for reasons such as that. This is an insane movie. My alternate title for this movie is May Too. <laughs> just with a very southern accent. <laughs> It's a completely insane movie. And so I did find it watchable because I was trying to figure out what the fuck was happening. Um, it's so the kind of movie that n- never would get past the pitch phase now. <laughs> like no. it's, it is every level of it is problematic. Oh, yes. But it was also like, it was so funny to see this cast because like there are people like, like Robert Duvall, Lucas Haas, who I always really enjoyed and saw in a lot of movies growing up. And also the, his sister, the Lucas, Haas, uh, Lucas Haas's sister is played by the older sister in Mrs. Doubtfire. So it also yeah. did feel like a very much a 1990s movie. Very much. As much as I love Laura Dern forever and ever, this was no competition in terms of acting and performance. Yeah, I like her performance. Like, she does what is called for, and she's very... Sure. She's very watchable. This one also, too, kind of feels like it should be a play or something. Absolutely. It, yeah, it does actually feel like it would probably be a pretty good play. Uh, I think it was a play. No? 
Let's assume. (laughs) So this was directed by Martha Coolidge, um, a woman, uh, as you might guess from the name Martha, which is interesting because it... (laughs) Yeah, I looked that up. It feels kind of like something a man would direct. Like it has like these kind of big feminist moments, especially from Diane Ladd, who like makes big like overtures on the like rights of Rose, uh, especially when they think she's pregnant and, you know, she's defending her. So it has this kind of feminist bent, but it also is very weird because, like, it has this female character who just, like, like literally can't control herself from, like, sleeping with everyone and has no agency. And she especially has no agency because she's, like, the servant of the family, basically. Like, she's, like, the live-in maid for the whole family. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's also very much, like, the, the the to me, the feminism of it is only very much on the surface. Yeah. Whereas, like, with Thelma and Louise, it's, like, through every single level of it. And, like, it, it emanates from within the characters and the characters' choices, like, emanate from there being women. Like, it's it also felt like a movie where the female leads never really upend the power dynamic dynamic you know they never really have not just like agency of their own but they never kind of turn the tables on any of the men in their life that much yeah it was written by a man uh, yeah if you can't tell like i feel like it just needed to be directed a little bit different like a little bit more campy and like like cat on a hot tin <laughs> roof or something you know like yeah, a tennessee I don't, think works. I don't think they yelled the word nympho even once I I feel like it could have worked if it like the temperature had been turned up a little bit and it was like more knowing like a mommy dearest take. Yeah. Can you can you do spoils, Chris? Like, or how did this movie end? Uh, well, <laughs> they think she's pregnant, but she's not. She has like cancer or something. Um. So it, oh, or something. <laughs> she has cancer <laughs> or something. She has something that needs an operation. She ends up like sleeping with the doctor. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah. And yeah. then she has all these men that keep like coming to the house and like disturbing them. What? And then she ends up getting arrested for biting a cop, and then she ends up marrying that cop. I'm I'm sorry. What is this movie about? Rambling roses. Again, is it a biopic? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's just about a slutty uh, maid. <laughs> Yeah, that eventually... title was taken by a porn, <laughs> so they had to call it Rambling Rose. I'm very glad that I didn't waste more of my time. It's not a good, it's not a great movie. It's it's, it's not a good movie either. I'm sorry. It's Chris. a very entertaining film. <laughs> I watched this movie before I watched everything else. And I was like, was this just like a really bad year? I mean, because I will get into Science of the Lambs. It's great. But I was like, was this just a really bad year? <laughs> And it beat, like, a lot of bad stuff, but I didn't even look at the Best Picture nominees, so that's a lot of good ones. Well, and this is, year is kind of interesting, because, like, Annette Benning didn't get a nomination for Bugsy, which is a role that definitely, like, got her a lot of attention. So there were other choices. See, I didn't even see Bugsy, and, and like you, Becky, I, I didn't look up what any of these Oscar, these other Oscar nominees were in the other various categories. Um, but I, Bugsy never really struck me as necessary, or in, for Prince of Tides, for that matter, never struck me that much as like best picture caliber material. Maybe that's just my perception of them now, though. No, that's an accurate perception. <laughs> I have watched them both recently. Okay. Yeah, they both seem like very minor movies. Yeah. Well, okay. So we're going to put aside Jodie Foster for now since she ended up winning and we haven't talked about that movie yet. Nobody puts Jodie in the corner. But in this lineup, who do you give the Oscar to? You oh. cannot tie. We have oh. to we have to choose someone. No. No, I can't. I can't. You are making us choose between women and that is wrong, Chris. 
You have to choose Bette Midler or Laura Dern. You're making me split the vote. So then I would have to go to like Laura Dern or Bette Midler. Yeah, yeah, no, I, w- I w- wouldn't vote. <laughs> I mean, if it's going to be a chance to vote for Laura Dern, I'm going to do that no matter what. Even for no, this. You're supposed to pick Susan uh, Sarandon or Gina fine, Davis. I'll, p- I'll pick Gina Davis, but like I'm not happy about it. <laughs> Although I am. She's great. I wanna, She's luminous. I want to invoke... Uh, neutral neutrality here, and not vote for either one because I feel like Susan Sarandon is also very underrated. I mean, she's very beloved for this movie, though. Gun to my head, I guess I choose Gina Davis, but really, they both deserve it because this movie would not be what it is without each of them and and the energy that they create together. I choose Laura Dern. No, I don't. (laughs) I choose Gina Davis as well. For me, it wasn't as hard of a decision. I mean, I think Susan Sarandon is great too, but I think Gina Davis is just so luminous and like, you just cannot stop watching her. Like anytime she's on screen in this, like she's just magnetic. So for me, it was an easy pick, even though runner up is great too. All right, the Oscar goes to Gina Davis. Okay. You're not a runner up in my heart, Susan Sarandon. We will give you a smaller Oscar it's the same shape. It's just half the size. And it's made of chocolate. <laughs> I, I would actually kind of prefer that Oscar. So enough about all those losers. <laughs> you can consider this episode an hors d'oeuvre. But in part two, we'll be dining on the main course. The big winner of the 1991 Oscars, The Silence of the Lambs. Yay. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for someone to do that. I got it out of the way early. And that's enough Best Actress contenders for one episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed us, please follow us on all the socials. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and leave us reviews and ratings of five stars or more. I have been Seth. I'm a Louise. (laughs) And I like your wife.